this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode. I have Alexander with Beam with us today. Beam is a project that I've been hearing so much about because of the protocol they have called Mimblewimble. And so we talked a lot about what Beam and Mimblewimble is, and this is going to actually follow our recording that we did with Monero. So this is kind of our privacy week, if you will, on base layer. And so the fact that transactions on Bitcoin and many of its derivatives are not confidential, all transaction history is stored in a public ledger accessible to anyone, makes cryptocurrency use in real life quite problematic. Can anyone think of a business that would want all of its income and expenses to be seen by its competitors? This is a quote directly off of Beam's uh, kind of materials and websites. And so we talked a lot about, again, privacy. And we talked about what privacy is and how they actually get to privacy. And so we did talk a lot about the competition between Monero and Zcash. We talked about the trilemma, about how you can actually get privacy and scalability and speed and decentralization, all of those things together. So we spent a lot of time on Mimblewimble, which is their protocol. And we talked about how these things work. Uh, we talked about things called Pedersen commitments. And you're going to learn about the schema behind that. And we talked about zero-knowledge proofs again because that is a component of some of the things that they're working on there. And so this is a great overall kind of comprehensive review of Beam. Uh, it is, as I said, as a project, one that had a lot of attention. Um, and I still think that you know people are focusing in and are looking at it. Um, and again, you got to love Mimblewimble. That is just an amazing name for a protocol. And so remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And then on the flip side, you're going to hear the conversation with Alexander. Take care. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. Really excited about this. I have Alexander Zeidelson from Beam with us today, and I have been hearing so much about Beam and about Mimblewimble, and there's lots of things we're going to be talking about today. It's going to get a little technical. Don't be scared, because what these guys are doing could be revolutionary. And so, Alexander, if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself before we get into Beam and about some of the components there. I want to find out more about you because you've had a great career so far and taking part in a lot of startups. And so talk to us a little bit about yourself first, and then we're going to go into a brief description about Beam and then go really deep into some of the components that are making you guys really special. Hey, David. Thanks for the introduction. Really excited to be here on the show. Um, so a bit of background on myself. Um, so I got interested in computers about age maybe. 14 and started, started playing with uh, BASIC as a programming language. Um, then I went on to study Pascal, Delphi, and, and other stuff. Um, I got my MA in Applied Linguistics back in St. Petersburg, Russia, which is like a combination of linguistics and computer science. Really enjoyed that, although I didn't get too much of a chance to work in this area since then. Um, and then I moved over to Israel and worked as a software developer for five, six years. Um, and then I started a company uh, with, with two friends 
that was doing stuff in the peer-to-peer -peer file sharing networks with, that were all rage back then in 2005, 2008. So we were doing peer-to-peer -peer file sharing on the mobile. We were monitoring the peer-to-peer -peer file sharing networks, uh, pushing paid or trying to push paid content into those networks. So it was very interesting, by the way, the technology you know, looking back, the peer-to-peer -peer file sharing technology is very similar in a lot of aspects to uh, uh, to blockchain technology. It's also permissionless, um, decentralized, and so on. Uh, after that, I had a small, like, almost one-man startup where I created, actually programmed a piece of software called Wikitop, which was a desktop dictionary where you could just right-click any word on the screen and get it translated and defined um, and see pictures uh, explaining this word or, or videos or whatever. So actually I was pulling content from all over the internet uh, about this specific uh, word and mostly from Wikipedia and Wiktionary because back then there were other dictionaries that were doing this translation, but they were paid. And I think, and I thought back then like, why would, would, we, would we make people pay for this if all those translations are out there for free on Wikipedia and Wiktionary? Um, so, you know, also it was just another another approach to this uh, decentralized, uh, democratized ecosystem of knowledge. Um, and it, it was it was a pretty good product, so eventually got acquired by an Israeli conglomerate here. Um, then I worked at a company called WeFi. I was doing product management. It was VP of product management there eventually. And we were doing a lot of big data analytics uh, of looking at the mobile data. Uh, data of mobile devices, their movement, the apps they're using, the network quality, and we're working with corporate customers in the states. So that was a very different, very different experience. But you know, it was all of work with uh, customers and, and user experience and all that. And after that, I spent two years in a VC fund here in Israel, investing in growth in late stage companies, very broad set of technologies starting from 3D printing to semiconductors to medical devices to big data to software. Uh, very diverse, uh, very interesting. And then at some stage I felt I wanted to get back to like doing things rather than looking at or than watching other people do things. Um, and around 2017, I started to get interested. I'm, I'm a relative newcomer into crypto. So it's only then that I started to learn a little bit about crypto, started playing with uh, you know, smart contracts on Ethereum, and started you know, buying some stuff. And when I realized that uh, the potential of this industry is, is just huge, right? That the, the, promise is to, the promise is to replace money, right? And money is like whatever, 90 trillion. And crypto industry today is what 260 billion. So the, the growth potential is is just amazing, and the technology is beautiful. So I started to get interested, and then uh, and then eventually I joined Beam uh, because I really like the project, I really like the space, and I really like the chance to to do stuff. So that's the story. That's how I got here. It's good. It's, you know, there are people who, you know, always say that they got into this in 2011, 2012. And then there are people like yourself who had a longer journey who have just gotten in here, but have so much value to bring to the table because you've had a lot of experience in building other things. 
And so getting into Beam, um, and by the way, I highly recommend people who are listening to check out your website because you provide a wealth of information. You can really learn a lot about the project. So you talk about why does the world need another coin? And so we're going to talk a lot about what you guys are doing there. Um, and that there's this notion, there's this thing that you've built called Mimblewimble Protocol. Um, but at the end of the day, Beam uh, is in the privacy space. Uh, things like Monero and Zcash are kind of in that similar vein. And so creation of a coin that is confidential, scalable, and optionally audible. We believe that Bean Coin will serve as a truly usable confidential store value with an addition of second layer solutions like Lightning to allow for day-to-day -day usage. So with that, give us a little bit of a primer on the, the build out of Beam. Why is Beam here today? Why, what, sir, what purposes are, are Beam uh, for the everyday user out there? And then we're gonna go into the specifics on how you guys are doing everything that you promised to do. Sure. So Beam is a new generation privacy coin based on this new generation protocol called Mimblewimble. It's, it's obvious that privacy is badly needed for any financial activity. So without, without privacy, it's hard to imagine like real world usage of a financial instrument. If, if everyone sees what I'm doing uh, with my uh, money or my shares or my uh, bonds or whatever monetary instruments, it, it's not good, right? So obviously privacy is needed. So uh, Mimblewimble solves this problem of privacy and scalability in one. The solutions that we have today, uh, and the, the primary technologies are that of Monero and, and of Zcash, uh, they are good and, and they have their advantages and disadvantages, but one thing is for sure, they are much less scalable than Mimblewimble. So their blockchains are very big because you know, if you look at it in a very layman, in a very simple perspective, so both Zcash and Monero took Bitcoin's architecture and then added obfuscation on top of it in, a very, in very different ways. But this obfuscation has a cost in, in the size of the blockchain. Meaning that you know today's Monero blockchain is like five times bigger per transaction than than Bitcoin. So running a full node, you know, when Monero reaches reaches the the same level of usage as Bitcoin today, its blockchain would be like almost 1.5 terabyte, right? So so running it even on a on a PC like on a on on a on a home computer would be hard, right? Let alone a laptop or or a, or a mobile device. So, so it is a real problem. Scalability is a real problem. Mimblewimble actually solves that. So, but Beam actually set two more goals. So one goal is to be super usable, super usable. And we are inventing, uh, we're investing and inventing a lot of time uh, and, and resources into making our software easy to use by, uh, by a regular person. Um, because a lot of projects today are hard to use and it's you know it's it's commonplace today that the crypto industry is still not there in terms of uh you know making these use for anyone right and, and in addition to that uh you know when, when i started understanding about privacy uh and about the need for privacy in, in and the absence of privacy actually in, in in today's crypto space 
So uh, what I realized was that just a private coin, Canada, if you're if you're 100 confidential, there is this uh, there is a danger that you'll become a niche instrument because businesses. And again, we're coming back to Satoshi's dream, right? We want to replace money, and most of the money is somehow getting in and out of businesses, right? Uh, the economy is all around businesses, right? And all and businesses, you know, whether we like it or not, they, they have to report uh, and they have to, to pass certain audits and so on. Uh, so, so we realized actually that a coin also needs to be auditable. Mm -hmm. uh, but we realized that we cannot make it and we don't we, we, we value privacy we don't want to make it audible auditable at any moment by anyone whether the user wants it or not and and that's how we came to this concept of opt-in auditability which is uh, a way for every user to choose whether they want to stay completely private or whether they want to create some sort of history uh that is in our case will be stored off-chain but it's up to the user and to their counterparties to agree on creating this history and then to be able to show it to an auditor at a later stage. Right. I think it's important for listeners to understand that, well, according to the research and the writings that you guys post, that there is a difference between Bitcoin and between Ethereum, between Monero, between Zcash. So, as you write, the fact that transactions on Bitcoin and many of its derivatives are not confidential, and I think a lot of people do think they are, um, and so it appears that they're not, all transaction history is stored in a public ledger accessible to anyone. And so the idea, obviously, is that it was a public ledger, that it is transparent, that it is immutable, but apparently with that, there are obviously some things in terms of privacy that are set off. And so... It makes cryptocurrency use in real life quite problematic, as you alluded to. And this is the question you guys state. Can anyone think of a business that would want all of its income and expenses to be seen by its competitors? And so this has been a problem. We've we've had this conversation on the show before, whether people are using iterations around zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, we had Matt from Keep on here as a privacy layer on Ethereum. There are some iterations around this notion of privacy and be able to use public blockchains, but to keep certain things private. So one of the features of the Bitcoin blockchain was and is transparency. And so people have even gone to say, you know, if we had the Bitcoin blockchain and it was used by financial institutions in 2007, 2008, and 2009, it might have mitigated the financial crisis because there was all of the data there visible by everyone that the problems could have been seen and could have been audited by the regulators better than they obviously did, you know, because a lot of it was behind the veil. So what do you think about this? You know, is it, is there a use case? Is there a reason why we should have privacy or, you know, is there, you know, is there this reason and rationale that the Bitcoin camp says that with transparency can also provide much more, um, kind of checks and balances? Um, well, I think, say, I think it's a little bit far-fetched. Uh, because let's imagine all of those, uh, um, uh, all, all of those, like, all of those monetary instruments, all of that bad debt, you know, let's imagine it was, like, on a blockchain, like, uh, uh, 
so so yeah, so we would see like how banks are selling it one to another, but we won't see them the underlying value of those assets, right? Because as far as I like, the problem was that those were the debts were really that there was a lot of bad debt, right? But the blockchain actually doesn't doesn't give you an indication of how bad it is. Uh, so uh, I, I don't I think it's far fetched. I, I don't think that this kind of transparency would have prevented the crisis. Uh, I mean, it may be a nice uh, a nice thing to kind of to uh, think or discuss, but I, I would I wouldn't believe it's that's the case. Uh, and moreover, I think that such kind of transparency where everybody sees what everybody else is doing uh, is just impossible. It is very hard for for, for, for a business, nobody would want to do business like that. Nobody would want to uh, show um, all their finances to, to everyone. I mean, it's just, it's the same as imagining that all the banks that would have like this public uh, web page where you could log in, type in the account number and get all the transactions. Just imagine this for a second, what that would mean, even without the names. Right. Right. So I just... Go on, on your bank's webpage, type in the account number, and, and get all the transaction history, all the holdings, everything. It doesn't make sense because then I would know, uh, you know, on a personal level, I would get a lot of uh, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, first of all, I would be able to de-anonymize these accounts pretty easily. You know, it's, you know, learn your account number in some way by sending you money or or by making a transaction with you, and then it would divulge all over. And, and then I would be able to, you know, to attack, if we're talking about private people, right? I would, I would be able to start asking all those uh, annoying questions like, oh, I see you bought booze at, you know, 3 a.m. Uh, last Wednesday. Is there a problem, you know? And even, and, and then you are already like in, in a defensive position. You, you need to start explaining why you bought this, why you bought that. Oh, and then you sold, I see that you sold, you know, a share. Or, or you bought, a, uh, you know, an old car. Or you sold your, you sold your car, so you have problems. You know, I, I, everyone would be able to attack anyone with those kind of stupid, uh, seemingly stupid allegations or, or questions, and then it would be very hard to uh, and very annoying to start to explain. And, and we don't want to be there. I don't want to explain to anyone why I bought this or this or that. And, and, right. And, Right, so so that's that's why now. And if I'm thinking about a business, that would be just ruinous, right? Because a competitor would know exactly how much money they're making, um, how much they're paying to everyone. So people would not would just not agree to that. They would try to use. They would not want to use this kind of an instrument to conduct their personal and business finances. Mm-hmm. So let's get into a little bit more about Mimblewimble. So um, you know. Satoshi, as this was written recently, Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin paper has a section titled Privacy, in which Nakamoto is very realistic about Bitcoin's privacy limitations. These limitations have gotten worse as adversaries have gotten better at using the data Bitcoin spills to dox and de-anonymize Bitcoin users. This has surprised some people who thought Bitcoin was private because it doesn't disclose names. As we know, it's synonymous. Bitcoin provides information such as sender's address, amount of coin sent, and receiver's address. 
it receives and reveals them because at the end of the day, it is a money system like gold, cash, and barter, and has to fulfill certain requirements. So this is going to get us to conversations about something called a Peterson commitment, or also can also be associated with things like zero knowledge proofs and commitment schema. So can you talk to us a little bit about the, the Mimble Wimble protocol and how it relates to, you know, kind of working, you know, to potentially solve some of the problems that have been kind of alluded to with, you know, Bitcoin's privacy? Yeah, sure. So, so Mimble Wimble is very interesting because it actually got a very different approach to the to 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 the architecture than Bitcoin. Bitcoin and most of the other systems are based on addresses that are stored in the blockchain. Okay, so Mimblewimble, like the first thing it did, it just got rid of addresses. Right, there's no such thing as an address at all. So the whole blockchain. Uh, can be thought of as a huge wall of safe deposit boxes, right? And each safe deposit box is an unspent transaction output or, or a set of coins, right? All those boxes look, I mean, they, they all look different, but you cannot discern anything by looking at, at each box. If you see a box, you don't know what's inside. And only the owner of the box, uh, who knows the value, like the amount of money and the secret key, only the owner can unlock the box and create uh, a transaction with this box. The boxes are represented using uh, Pedersen commitment, uh, which is actually a very simple mathematical um, expression, uh, which looks like this. The, the, the commitment, uh, the, the amount looks like this. So it's the value multiplied by one huge number, which is a generator point on an elliptic, elliptic curve, plus the secret key or the blinding factor, it's another name for it, multiplied by another huge number. So this sum together represents the commitment, but only if I know, and, and there is uh, like in, 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 all of, in, in most cryptography, right, there's no way to factor out the value and the key without knowing them. But if you know them, then, then, you, can, then you can do things with this, uh, with this commitment. So, a transaction to Mimblewimble is actually created interactively between two users uh, where they start to communicate. One user, you know, the sender provides the input box or boxes. The recipient creates the output boxes. Uh, and the sender also creates the box for, for change, right? Because if I have like a box of 100 and I want to send you 80, then you would. I, I show you the box of 100, you create a box of 80 for yourself, and then I create a box of 20 for myself, right? Because that's the chain. And now this whole construction that contains three commitments, right? Three Pedersen commitments. This is the input into outputs. Uh, it's created. Uh, we attach proofs that the values in each one of the boxes are positive greater than zero, because if they are negative, then we can get to all kinds of undesired uh, effects like printing money. Uh, and we also prove that the sum of the inputs equals to the sum of the outputs, right? And, and the way it's done, it's done without showing the actual values, right? And then this whole construction is sent 
to the blockchain. The miners look at it, ver verify the proofs that there is no cheating going on here, and that you know the sum of inputs is equal to the sum of outputs, and then all the values are positive. And then they just record this new state of the blockchain. Okay, so so in the previous state, I had a box of 100, and in the new state, I have a box of 20, and you have a box of 80. And that's what's actually stored. So the blockchain just represents, always, always represents the current state of coin ownership. And it has a set of kernels, and a kernel is something that is stored for each one of the transactions. It's a small uh, piece of information that actually contains a proof that the transaction was valid. So there's no addresses and no amounts on the blockchain. And in that, it's obviously very, very different from uh, Bitcoin's blockchain. And the history is also very important. Like the, the, the scalability comes from the fact that you don't need to store the history. Right. Uh, so you just store the current state and a proof that the current state is uh, valid. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So in terms of competition uh, with other privacy coins like Monero and Zcash, um, they have, as you guys describe and others, merits and technology that uh, are proving good for confidentiality, but potentially don't fully deliver on scalability, as you alluded to, in decentralization. So we've had conversations about the, the trilemma, as Vitalik, I think, coined that phrase. And we've had everyone from Silvio McCallie to others out there discussing the trilemma. Um, and so if you want to have a good primer about the trilemma, you can listen to the recording with Al Grant and Silvio because it was good to how he broke it down that a lot of projects out there have failed to either provide decentralization and scalability um, and some other things at the same time. So we can we don't have to necessarily go through that because there's been uh, other conversations about that. But effectively, um, Beam will support around 17 transactions per second. And correct me if I'm wrong, maybe that's a little outdated, but maybe there's some new stat. But 17 transactions per second. Um, and this is higher than Bitcoin. As we know, Bitcoin is about three transactions per second. Um, so, you know, let's talk about how you guys are actually getting there in terms of the scale. How are you doing that? Because... With Bitcoin, it is a linear process. You have to wait, you know, 10 minutes to propagate a block. And it's, as I said, very linear. It's block by block, whereas others have used things like graph technology where it's not, you know, linear in nature. So how are you getting to, to 17 transactions per second versus Bitcoin? So right now we are, in, in terms of transaction throughput, we are very similar to Bitcoin in terms of, you know, we, we are faster just because we have uh, a block every minute rather than a block every 10 minutes. But our block has around 1,000 transactions, so that's how we get to 17 transactions per second. Uh, and we, right now, our scalability claim is not related to the transaction throughput, but rather to the size of the blockchain. That's why we say scalable confidential cryptocurrency. By scalable, we mean the scale of the blockchain database rather than transaction speed. Now, so right now, 17 transactions per second is probably more than enough for what our blockchain is required to do. Today, we are seeing around 5,000 transactions per day on Beam blockchain, which is, by the way, um, I think the highest of all the privacy coins today, or at least on par with the 
even with uh, incumbents like Monero and Zcash. Uh, by the way, with Zcash, if you check it, with Zcash, there are only 60 actually confidential transactions per day because like 95 to 97% of transactions in Zcash are not even private at all. Um, and that's, you know, that's, uh, you can see it on Zcash. Right. Okay. But um, anyway, so, so first of all, right now we're not claiming scalability in terms of transactions per second or transaction throughput. That said, we understand that there will be a need for that. So first of all, we're working on what we call laser beam, which is, uh, which is payment channels on beam. So we actually have the code ready and we have published a technical paper on that and we'll be doing a demonstration uh, in a couple of weeks uh, on how that would work. Um, that's one. And our roadmap also includes a researching ghost stack uh, to use the, the graph technology to see if we can speed things up. But at the moment, you know, it's, it's a research task that we will start working on in, in a couple of months from now, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, I mean, we don't see a pressing need for increasing scalability on the one hand. On the other hand, we understand that it will be possible by introducing second layer solutions like Lightning or its variants, and possibly also improving the, um, the first layer. But we don't plan to go away from proof of work. Got it. I thought it was super interesting. This is in your FAQ, and I, I, I actually really enjoyed this transparency, even though we're talking about privacy. But this honesty, it, it says, in the future, it will be possible to improve transactions throughput by using a second layer out-of-chain solution such as Lightning, Thunderella, et cetera, as you alluded to. Then you should be able to pay for your lattes with Beams. Until then, Beam's primary use case is store value rather than day-to-day payments. I, I, I think a lot of people, you know, there's been, <laughs> there are a lot of efforts these days to try to use Bitcoin to buy a latte, and I have actually done that. I've used a provider out there that allows you to buy a Dunkin' Donuts coffee with Bitcoin. It's not directly Bitcoin. You have to go through you know, someone in the middle. Um, but I think it's really interesting so you guys, you know, I think the honesty there, I really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, now, now looking back into this, um, into what we wrote in, in FAQ, I think we were a little bit strict on ourselves because, you know, this was written uh, quite some time ago and it's, and it's true. But today uh, we're seeing a lot of internet merchants starting to accept Beam, especially, it's especially popular with VPNs services like this uh, that provide privacy and the actual experience is very good uh, the, the block time of just one minute you know lets you really see the money in in the recipient wallet pretty fast and it's it's a really great experience you know, when you just pay with beam or, or transfer beam mm-hmm. it takes very little time again of course the network right now would not be able to support millions of transactions per second, which is required for a global payment system. Right. Uh, so what we said is, is true, but right now, you know, you could even buy a latte, right? Maybe not in millions, but, you know, as, as the use case today, if somebody were to accept Beam uh, for, for as payment for latte, and may, maybe there is somebody already, uh, it is possible. It just won't scale up 
in, a, in the right fashion. For that, we'll need to do lightning and upgrade to layer one. So I'm curious, as we're seeing some proof-of-work models out there, Ethereum obviously being the one that is now transitioning to proof-of-stake, is that ever something that you guys considered? I know that there's there's a very big emphasis, and we're going to talk about governance after this, but there's a big emphasis, obviously, on you know kind of being decentralized and not having a centralized authority kind of making the decisions here. But with you know proof-of-work models seeming to you know potentially transition to proof-of-stake, which has been stipulated is more environmentally friendly and could be better uh, for you know the masses out there. Is that something ever that's been discussed or is that even possible? So uh, it may be possible. We still have to see a working proven proof of stake uh, implementation until, because there is a lot of skepticism, uh, how this can be manipulated uh, because the, the fundamental difference between proof of work and proof of stake is that for proof of work, you can you need to actually expand resources to, to, to do something or, or to change something or to validate something. The proof of stake, you just have you don't spend anything, you just lock it. So this opens up possibilities for uh, all kinds of bad behaviors where your bad behavior doesn't cost you that much. Right. So, so I know people are trying to find schemes where um, you know where a bad validator actually has to pay part of their stake or all of their stake. We still have to see how it plays out. With proof of work, it's very simple. You know, in order to, to mine a block, you need to spend this and this amount of electricity. And if you want to redo something or want to do uh, some bad things, again, you need to spend electricity. And then there is this game theoretical uh, uh, situation where it's, it might not be even worthwhile, even if you control 60% of the network, 51% of the network. It, it may be, you may be better off just doing the honest thing and not trying to steal. And I'm not sure that is true with proof of stake. As of yet, again, I'm, I'm not talking about a specific implementation. I haven't studied that in, in detail. Uh, but my view is that proof of stake is still very early. Right. And it's, you know, if it ever happens, uh, then we might consider uh, moving to it. Although with, with and I say with a privacy coin, it might be even more difficult, right? Because uh, the whole point of proof of stake is that you have to show your funds right. somehow publicly. And um, you know, with a privacy coin, it's probably more difficult. Although I think, it, I mean, if we, if we set this goal, we could uh, find ways to do that. Now, in terms of the environment friendliness, I don't buy that. Uh, you know, everything burns electricity. Uh, banks burn electricity, computers burn electricity, uh, air conditioners, cars, whatever. Um, so, and I don't know if anyone did a, uh, an analysis of how much electricity the banking system burns. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's like way, way, way more than Bitcoin with, with all their uh, branches and data centers and heating um, and lighting and, and just shiny signs on the skyscrapers, whatever, right? So it's okay. It's okay to burn electricity to produce value. And humanity has been doing that for quite some time and will continue to do that. And it will be just totally fine as long as the value you know, proves it. And, and, and with, with crypto, actually, there is value that is produced. It, the electricity is not just burned for, burned for nothing. You have economical value 
that that has a price tag for every uh, for every watt spent. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm okay with uh, Bitcoin and Beam and other proof of work coins burning electricity as long as the value is there. Yep, you have to think about obviously with the banking system that you know they obviously are using the the internet architecture and using all the stacks involved and. You know, there has been comparisons between the entire internet usage of energy versus, you know, say Bitcoin and proof of work. And so I think if you if you look into it, you can extrapolate that, you know, there is a uh, there is a differential there. And that I agree that the, you know, the environmental energy consumption kind of case out there in the cries, you know, are not necessarily founded. And as we see with proof of work that a lot of the miners are moving towards more renewable usage of energy. They're using solar, they're using hydro, they're using other forms of energy that are not necessarily CO2 emitting. So, uh, you know, I, I agree with you on that point. Um, they are not the problem. We might have this problem of CO2 and, and uh, uh, non-inefficient electricity usage, but it but all the crypto industry in, in you know the grand scheme of things is so small that you know as states move to more renewable energy and, and incentivize people to use it, of course the Bitcoin miners or the crypto miners will, will use it, right? But I don't think it's fair to expect uh, it's not fair to blame the crypto industry for environmental problems because it's again relatively very very small, and also it's not fair to to expect the miners to be uh, you know, to be the first or to to, to care the most about uh, renewable energy, right? As there is this general movement towards renewable energy, and the miners will join in. But you know, the, there is Greenpeace and there is you know crypto miners, and they have different agendas. That's fine. Right. I want to make, really understand just so people you know who don't necessarily have the technical acumen that obviously you know, some others that might be listening to the show. So. With proof of work, if you are currently mining, if you currently have a mining rig set up for proof of work and you're mining Bitcoin, because you are also proof of work, would that also allow a miner to be able to do that fairly easily? Uh, not really. Bitcoin is mostly mined with dedicated devices, ASICs, dedicated chips that can solve the Bitcoin, do the hashing for for Bitcoin mining. Right. So uh, Beam uh, uses an algorithm called Beam Hash, mm-hmm. Equihash, and it's most efficiently mined on GPUs, on uh, on the graphical processing units, the, those cards that help us, you know, play video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so miners who have farms, who have GPU farms, and are mining Ethereum or, or Zcash. Today or Monero, they can easily switch to uh, Beam or 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 Green or, or any other any other coin that's GPU mineable. Right. So Beam, we actually made this decision to remain ASIC resistant for about eighteen months, uh, and to do that, we actually announced two hard forks where where we change the algorithm of mining so that the people don't start building those ASICs. Because right, it, it takes about five months to build five six months to build an ASIC, mm-hmm. and if you know that after six months the algorithm will change, then you won't just won't start building it, right? Because right. it will be uh, obsolete when you finish it. So so right now we are doing a hard fork. It will kick in on August fifteen. 
So we already released the code. And by the way, if any one of the listeners has any Beam software installed, be it a wallet or a node, uh, please go to our website and update. It's very important because after August 15, your old software will just stop working. Uh, that's how forks work. So right. and, then, and then we'll have another one somewhere in December or January. Uh, and after that, we will say that, that that would be the last one. And then if somebody wants to build NASIC, they're welcome. Right. So it's important for people to, to acknowledge, though, that the, the infrastructure there, the physical infrastructure, the hardware there is already pre-existing in the world and that people are already using it. It's just a transition. And so they don't need to reinvent the wheel that the, the, the technical hardware is already there and people are already using it and it's already capable of doing this. And so I think that's important because uh, time to scale and getting to market uh, is not necessarily affected. So getting to governance, let's talk about this. So the core team and Beam Development uh, LTD do not have any intention to govern Beam in the long run. There is no point to having a cryptocurrency governed in a centralized way by a corporation. Therefore, we offer our solution to our community. We are opening the code, welcoming open source developers, and setting a, up a nonprofit foundation that will be unconditionally funded by the treasury. So in the future, or wherever this goes, is this? do you think this might take the form of like a DAO? Uh, in the future, yes. It will be a, a long journey. Uh, it might. We started even, we actually started looking at solutions to do that, and there are very nice solutions out there, like DAOStack and, and a couple others. Uh, but it won't happen, you know, overnight. Uh, so we will start by transitioning from the company to a foundation. So we have now the foundation is being set up uh, in Singapore, uh, and the foundation will be run by a board that is not part of the original core team. Maybe there will be one member uh, from the original team, but that would be it. So this would be a first step towards decentralization. And, and the foundation will use the money or use the beam coins that it has from the treasury and it has 4% of all the coins that are being mined and will be mined in the first five years, right? And it's, uh, it's a significant amount. So, so the foundation will use those coins to fund development. Probably in the beginning, a large part of those funds will still go to the core development team because the, the team is, you know, the, the, the team is the team that can actually build Beam and knows the code. But we will, or the foundation will, uh, invest efforts into growing the community by issuing bounties, giving out grants, and so on. The, and, and the idea is that in several years from now, the core team's role will be smaller and smaller and smaller, and the, the role of the global community will be larger and larger. And then we can also move to a DAO eventually. Great. So now that we've gotten kind of out of the woods on some of the technicals, and I really appreciate some of that because I think it's important, again, because this is in regards to privacy and that we have had other conversations around Monero and some others out there, and I think it's important to have the distinguishing factors and features so now that we get to know you 
Um, for those that know the show, I always like to kind of find out a little bit more about the guests and we ask them just two simple questions. And so what have you been reading? If there's anything, it doesn't have to be crypto related, but anything that you've read recently that really you know, kind of resonated with you. And then what kind of music, if you listen to music, what kind of music do you listen to while you're working or traveling? What kind of inspires you or gets you, uh, gets you going? Sure. So, uh, Reading, I like reading. Actually, I do both <laughs> eye reading and listening because you know I spend quite some time you know commuting. So uh, some of the last books I was reading are uh, Steven Pinker's uh, uh, The Better Angel, Angels of Tomorrow. It's a very very interesting book, although a bit long. That actually tells us that the time we're living in is probably one of the best times. Uh, in history of of the humankind, uh, you know, with, of, because a lot of people think that things are actually bad, but you know, if you look back, you understand that things are actually good and getting better. They're not perfect, obviously, but they're they're okay. And then uh, before that, I, I was listening to uh, Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, also a very interesting, fascinating book about genetics and how actually his thesis is that you know the genes are actually the units that are ruling the world and making us do things and and that and they and that we like exist or the animals and, and also humans existence is just to uh help those genes survive and that they kind of manipulate us in in this or that way um i also love fiction uh you know gabriel garcia marcus or uh vargas dioso that i was reading recently at Osman and others so uh, I, I try to read a lot. I used to read more uh, when I was younger. Now I don't have that much time. But, uh, you know, listening actually saves uh, saves me here. I'm just looking at my uh, Radical Markets was an interesting book that I, I was listening to uh, some time before. Uh, um, and I also read, uh, you know, Saipi Dinamos' uh, book on uh, Bitcoin, also very interesting, although some very... Um, some some of these views are controversial, but it's you know a very very interesting uh, book. I recommend it for anyone who's getting into crypto, uh, just to get this maximalist uh, view on uh, on Bitcoin. Uh, and in terms of music, you know I like classical music. Um, so when I work, it kind of calms me down. Also rock, you know Bob Dylan and uh, other stuff from that. Uh, mm -hmm. From the area, Metallica as well. Metallica, um, wow. Yeah, you know, it was it's from the 90s. You know, you get your musical tastes <laughs> young, so that's uh, um, that's what I like still. I see. I, I I will always love this question. I will always ask it because obviously we just went through some pretty deep stuff and obviously it's very technical stuff. But then you ask someone about what music they like and they bring up something like Metallic and there's always a smile on their face and it just makes me happy. Um, so if people could learn more about uh, Beam and about Mimble Wimble, where would you send them to go? You know, obviously your website, but is there any place else? Um, it's our website. It's our Twitter. Uh, of course, the website is a, is a great place to start. Obviously, uh, more technical people should go to our GitHub's wiki page. It's like a hidden gem that uh, probably we don't even advertise enough. But uh, on our GitHub, there's a wiki page mm -hmm. uh, with some technical articles. 
very interesting, very recommended. Uh, some some stuff there on, on some future directions, some deep technical descriptions of what we're building and what we've already built. Yep. Uh, so for the more uh, technical guys out there, uh, I would recommend going to this page and reading those wiki articles. And as I said, the website actually has a lot of information, which comparable to others, I think is, is, is a good testament. So even there's a 2019 roadmap, which talks about what they're, uh, what they're going to be uh, putting out there to market, you know, things like porting to Rust and things like their ghost tag um, and some of the changes that they're going to be making. So this, the website actually has a lot of information. So I highly recommend taking a look at it. And there is a white paper about Mimblewimble. Uh, to discuss the the components of it, um, and as I jokingly said on Twitter, the more I researched researched it over the last few days, the the dumber I felt. But at the same time, the smarter I'm going to be in the next you know five or ten years when everyone else is trying to catch up. So do it now because it's worthwhile and uh, it could be something really special. So this was Alexander from Beam. I definitely recommend checking it out and looking more into it. You know, as I said researching what they've built and looking at Mimblewimble. Hopefully we can have you on in a few months to catch up and see how all the progress is going on the roadmap. And uh, we'll be catching we'll be catching you soon. Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was really a pleasure. Great questions. Uh, and I, I'm happy you like our website. We spent a lot of time building it and making it more usable. And just to sum up, you know, at me we're trying to build the best in class, best in class privacy coin eventually with opt-in auditability, a coin that can be used by both people and businesses without compromising privacy in any way. Awesome. It was great talking to you. Take care. Great. Thanks a lot. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.